Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Uh, welcome to February. Uh, it uh, missed you so much that it came three months early, I guess. So thank you for braving the cold and coming to church. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you get them open right now? We're going to be in Exodus 20 and uh, then in Philippians. So we're going to be in our Bibles all morning. If you need a Bible, we have people coming down the aisles right now. Just raise your hand and we'll get those to you. But you're definitely going to want a copy of God's Word. And uh, thank you for being at church today. If you're new here, my name's Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here. So thankful that you're hanging out with us. Hope that you were blessed in our time of worship already. And uh, we are actually today wrapping up uh, a series we've been in all fall going through each of the Ten Commandments kind of one at a time. And and here's what I would say. Um, I'm so thankful that God chose to end this on this commandment. Uh, This commandment that we're going to talk to or talk about today is so practical, so helpful that I've just really been praying and believing all week that I think all of us are going to walk out of here challenged and thankful and blessed by our time together in his word. There's so much for us to dive into. So let's jump into it. Exodus 20 verse 17 is where we find the 10th commandment. And here's what it says. It says this. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So the 10th commandment is you shall not covet. And before we jump into that uh, a little bit deeper, I want to start this morning with a little bit of a history lesson. So I, I have a question for you. Which disciple referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved? You know who it is? If, he is, if you know, say it. Right, that's John, right? And I'm convinced he did that primarily to get Peter mad, right? He was like, no, no, I'm the one that Jesus loved. So Jesus and John were very, very close. Either his best friend on earth or at least in the group of three that were closest to to Jesus. So John is very, very close to Jesus. After Jesus ascends and goes into heaven, John has a disciple that he is very close to. His name is Polycarp. So Polycarp, in a spiritual sense, is like the grandson of Jesus, close to John, who's close to Jesus. And Polycarp is a massive leader and builder in the early church. As the church is getting established, as churches are being planted, he is doing so much in leadership. And Polycarp lives till he's 86 years old. And when he's 86, he's arrested by the Romans for causing insurrection in the empire for being a Christian. So they try him, they find him guilty, and what they do is is they bring him to the center of town, they tie him to a stake, and they say, Polycarp, you have a choice. We're either going to light you on fire and you're going to die a brutal death in front of everyone, or simply renounce that Jesus is the Messiah and you can walk away with your life. Here's what Polycarp said in that moment. He said this, he said, 86 years I have served Jesus Christ. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so as they're lighting the matches, as they're setting the stake on fire, as he is about to die, church history records his last words. And it's a prayer that he gives literally as he's losing his life for the sake of the gospel. Here's what it says. He says, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered amongst your martyrs. Sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received 
This day is an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all of these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you with him through the Holy Ghost be glory both now and forever. Amen. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear stories like this, I start to wonder, would I respond in the same way under those circumstances? I think in America in 2022 in West Michigan, it still costs us very, very little to align ourselves with Jesus, doesn't it? We might have some people who think we're weird or, or, or out of touch, but it's nothing like what Polycarp went through. And, and, and I think, man, when the temperature is raised, if everything was on the line, would I have the confidence to say, I will die for the name of Jesus? And when I look at this man, here's what I see. I, I, I see a life that I want to emulate. I want his courage. I want his boldness. I want his peace. I, I, I love how sure he is. I love how he's so thankful in that moment. And more than anything, maybe, I want his contentment. Hey, God, whatever happens, happens, but I am trusting you. There was a certainty and a vision for his life that is very attractive to me. So here's the big idea this morning. It's this. It's that a lifestyle of Christian maturity centers around contentment. What we saw in Polycarp was, I am content to follow God no matter what the cost. And church, here's what I will tell you. There is no growth in Christ. There is no true maturity in Christ if there's not growth and maturity in contentment. And here's what I want you to think right now. I want you to think of your heart as a two-lane highway. There's not a middle lane. There's not a third lane. You can't choose the middle on this. You have to choose one of two lanes. It's either going to be the lane of covetousness, which is going to run you right into oncoming traffic, or you have to choose the lane of contentment, which will lead to safety. So with that in mind, let's look at Exodus 20, 17 again. Here's what it says. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, here's the first thing we see, and, and you need to get this. Um, coveting is different from the other commandments. It, it, its nature is very different. With all of the other commandments, they were tied to a physical action. There was a physical action that others could observe you doing. Like if I murder someone, right, there's going to be someone who's missing. There's going to be a body that I have to deal with. It's an outward physical action. If I decide after church today that I'm going to steal Jake Westra's car, right, what are the odds he's going to notice that at the end of the service, right? Pretty high. It's going to be gone. And when I roll into work on Tuesday in his car, he's going to be like, dude, that's my car, right? There's a physical action. When I tell a lie, right, when the truth comes out, people are going to know that I'm lying. All of the other commandments are tied to physical actions, but coveting is uh, only an inward disposition of the heart. Coveting, there is no outward action. And what God is reminding the Israelites is, is, hey, listen, it's not just about what you do. It's not just going through the motions with your actions, but I actually see your heart and the disposition of your heart matters. Church, you can come in here this morning doing all of the right things and your heart can be gripped with paralyzing covetousness and no one else could know. 
God is setting the precursor for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, hey, it's not about committing adultery, it's also about lust. It's not about murder, it's about hatred, that the heart is what God is after. Do you guys remember the story of when Samuel's asked to anoint David as king of Israel? Right, Saul has failed, so God's like, I want a new king. And he just tells Samuel, go to Jesse's house, one of his sons is going to be the king. But he doesn't tell Samuel who it is. And Samuel gets to Jesse's house, and he sees the oldest son, Eliab. And he's like, dude, this is for sure the next king of Israel. Eliab was strong. He was handsome. He was a leader. He, he, he looked like everything you could want in a king. But here's what God says to Samuel. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at, but the Lord, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This last commandment, God's saying, it's not just about what you do, but it's where your heart lives. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about three things we tend to covet straight from verse 17. Here's the first thing we tend to covet. We covet comfort. Right? You see that right in the beginning of the passage. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And now here's what's wild about this commandment. Um, think about it. Where is Israel when they receive the Ten Commandments? Do you know? They're in the wilderness, right? They're at Mount Sinai. Where had they just come from? Someone say it to me out loud like you're awake. Egypt. Yep, they come from Egypt. What were they while they were in Egypt? They're slaves. So this is a group of slaves wandering around in the wilderness, and God says, don't covet your neighbor's house. Nobody had houses. Nobody had servants. Nobody had earthly possessions. But here's what God's saying. He's saying there's coming a moment where you're going to be established in the promised land, and I'm going to bless you with wealth and worldly possessions. Don't set your heart on those things. He's warning them about what's to come. It's not even just for this moment, but he's like, there's coming a day when, when you're going to be established and life's going to be more comfort comfortable. Don't put your hope in comfort, right? The house is where you live. It represents someone's wealth and comfort. And there's something in our hearts that wrongly believe that comfort and satisfaction are the same things. And, and we think the more comfortable I am, the more satisfied with life I will be and the happy, happier I will be. If I can just get more comfortable, then I will enjoy life more, right? If things weren't so tight in the budget, if we just had a little bit more space in our home, if we could go on just a few more vacations every year like our neighbors do, right? Like I know some of you are sitting here right now being like, man, if I just lived in Florida, my life would be so much better, right? Guess what? It wouldn't be. Right, I lived in Florida. The summers there are awful, right? It's different place, different challenges. But when life gets cold or gets hard or gets difficult, we're like, man, if I could just get more comfortable right now, that's what I need, right? We covet other people's positions thinking that their lives are more comfortable than ours, right? There's even a phrase for this. The grass is always greener on the other side, right? If I just was in that person's shoes, things would be better. And, and here's what's wild. I will meet with young guys in their 20s, and they're at the stage in their career where they're an employee, and they're working their way up the company, and they have a boss. And guess what they say? Man, I just wish I had my boss's job. If I had the money that that guy makes, if I had the freedom that that guy makes, I could make better decisions. I, I, I want those leadership responsibilities. And, and they're looking at their boss, coveting their position. 
Well, now I'm at the age where their boss are, are guys who are my age or close to my age in their late 30s, early 40s, and they're in my small group. And when we meet in breakout time, guess what they say? Man, I wish I was a young guy in my 20s and could just clock in and clock out and didn't have the responsibility that I have now. I wish I could leave work at home. I wish I didn't have so many things pulling me different directions, right? Each side looking at the other side of the fence, believing the grass is greener. We think that next level of comfort will lead us to what we need. It won't. Right? Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. They won't satisfy. Okay, here's the next thing we covet. We covet relationships. Right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. Right? We have this tendency in our hearts to look at the people that God has placed in our life and given us. And we want them to either be different or we want new people, right? I, I wish that couple were our close friends, our best friends. They seem so cool. I, I wish I was in this circle of friends. I wish I was at the cool kids table. Man, I wish my family wasn't so screwed up, right? Like I know what time of year it is. It's, it's holiday season, right? And you're thinking to yourself, man, I gotta go hang out with those people for like multiple days in the next month. They're thinking the same thing about you. You know that, right? right? Like every family is messy. Man, I, I wish my family was normal. I, I wish I had their marriage. I wish my kids could behave like their kids. I wish my kids were as talented as sports as that kid is. And it goes on and on and on. Not thankful, content with what we have, wishing things were different. And then here's the third. We, we covet stuff. Look how the, the commandment ends. Or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. He, he makes like a, a, an all-in statement. Don't covet anything that is not yours. Doesn't matter how good they look. It doesn't matter what car they drive. It doesn't matter what toys they have. And, and here's what happens with covetousness, which is why it's so dangerous. It actually warps how we think, right? When I am choosing to live in the lane of covetousness, here's what I'm doing. I'm minimizing all of the blessings and good things in my life. I'm focused on what I don't have. And then I'm looking at other people, minimizing their issues and struggles and focused on everything they do have. There's no way that's going to lead me to anywhere but misery, right? If you want to live a miserable life, focus on everything that you don't have right now. It doesn't help you get those things. And it just makes you discontent in the process. And here's what's wild. We know this. Like, this isn't even primarily or only a Christian principle. Like, if you were to ask most people in our culture, saved or unsaved, and be like, hey, is it healthy to live always wanting what you don't have? Most people would be like, no, that's not a good way to live. And church, look at me. I think if you were honest for a moment, you would say, I feel this in my heart every single day. This pull to be discontent, this pull to want more, this pull to wish things were different. So why is that? Well, here's why. It's because covetousness is hardwired into our lives. It's absolutely a part of our existence. And it's this reason for a couple uh, ways. Here's the first reason. Um, we live in a consumer economy. The goal of our economy is to promote and build covetous hearts. Like, just think about it. Imagine what would happen to our society if everyone decided today, hey, I'm not going to shop anymore. What would happen? Our country would collapse, wouldn't it? 
the markets would crater, the economy would tumble, everyone would lose their jobs. Like, like, like if we decided, hey, I'm good with what I have, our society fails. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, I'm not sure that, that, that I agree with you. Well, here's a guy who's much smarter than me. His name's Mark Clavier. He wrote a book on this issue. The book is called On Consumer Culture Identity, The Church and the Rhetorics of Delight. Sounds like a great read, doesn't it? Here's what he says in his book. He says, Western civilization depends on the relentless persuasion of citizens to shop. Consumer economies can't grow and develop unless individuals have the confidence and means to consume constantly. For that to happen, people must believe that shopping is necessary for self-understanding and self-expression. Consumers use brands to produce an identity via purchase, display, and use. Our branded selves can then be consumed by others as a mark of who we perceive ourselves to be and which social groups we desire to belong to. To accomplish this, consumer culture manufactures desires that only commodities can satisfy. Frugality and contentment are not values in a consumer society. Personal dissatisfaction, therefore, isn't a byproduct of consumerism, but the very essence of it. A contented public would be the ruin of Western economies. The rhetoric of the market, therefore, must undermine people's self-satisfaction in order to ensure that they will continue to consume. Billions of dollars are spent on, be on consumer behavior research to find new methods for convincing people that they have yet to find true happiness and still have needs that are unmet. Happy Black Friday, everyone. Hope you guys enjoy yourselves. <laughs> Right? It, it, it's, it's scary. How do we get people to continue to shop? We've got to convince them that their life will not be full unless they have this thing. Right? There's a reason why when you're at the store, they're like, hey, I'll give you 30% off this purchase. All you have to do is sign up for our newsletter. Right? Because like, I just want an in to your home so I can be showing you new things every day, convincing you that your life is incomplete without these new products. Right? There's a reason that there is high-tech algorithms on our phone so that when Mary and I are talking about shoes that we need to get our kids for Christmas, I open up my phone and Nike and Adidas and New Balance are all shooting me ads of their shoes, vying for my attention, trying to be the one that I choose. It's wiring discontentment into our hearts. Okay, here's the second reason it's so hardwired into us. Um, it's social media culture. We live in a culture that's dominated by social media, and social media means the comparison game never ends. It lives in our homes. Right? Like, think about this with me. Like, let's just say you're home on Friday night and you have nothing going on. Well, guess what? At your fingertips the entire night, you're being told, look at all the fun stuff that's going on that you're not a part of. Look at the concerts going on. Look at the vacations. Look at the people hanging out with other friends. Look at all that's happening that you're missing out on. It's a low-grade, always-happening discontentment sowed into our lives, right? When you're a young mom and you have three kids under the age of five and you are waist-deep in poopy diapers and spit up, this is here to say, hey, look at your friends who chose the career path. And they're on work trips in Miami right now. And they're out to dinner with clients, and they're traveling, and they're doing all of the fun things that you are not doing. Maybe you chose wrong, and our hearts become discontent. And by the way, the funny thing is, is we know it's not reality, 
right? We know that people only post pictures of themselves trying to project themselves a certain way. They only show the best things. But I tell you what, in the moment when we're honest, man, that pull to discontentment is strong. The temptation to compare our lives with the lives of others, it's a losing game, church. All right, so do me a favor. You ready for some hope? Turn to Philippians 4, because the gospel actually speaks into this in a powerful way and provides us with a great deal of hope. So as you're turning to Philippians 4, just a reminder, Paul is writing to a church that he planted. And Philippians, they're going through some persecution. Paul is in prison. He is waiting to go to Rome, waiting to be executed for his faith. And the church is worried about him. And they sent him note that, hey, we're concerned about you and we're praying for you. And in Philippians 4, verse 10, Paul talks to them about this very thing. Here's what he says. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now... At length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, look at verse 12 again. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's what Paul's saying, and church, this is important. Contentment doesn't happen when you get what you want. Do you see him saying there? He's like, listen, you have to learn to be content when you have plenty, just like when you're in hunger. When you have abundance, you need to learn contentment, just like when you have real needs. And you think, we think contentment will happen when we get what we want. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not the secret. In fact, God's word says that there's actually a danger when we get everything we want because those things will draw our hearts away from God, right? Like think about the example of Solomon. Do you know there's an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to this very idea. It's the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is a man who had 300 wives, 700 concubines. Every woman you could think of, he had. He uh, made more money than probably anyone, all of us in this room could bind, could ever dream to make. He built God's temple, he built vineyards, he built forests, he accomplished everything he wanted to. And in Ecclesiastes, he's an old man, and guess what he says? He goes, it was all vanity. He goes, everything under the sun is vanity. Nothing satisfies. And he ends the book by saying, listen, love your wife, honor the Lord, fear his commandments. That is the sole purpose of man. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. I love this. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And what he's saying, church, is that the secret to contentment is that satisfaction is only found in Jesus, right? Philippians 4.13 is one of the most misused passages in the entire Bible. We slaughter this verse all the time because here's why. Here's what we do. When we do something awesome, we run to this verse as like a thanks to God. So it's like, hey, we win the soccer tournament. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? We, we get the job or, or we get the promotion at work. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is not what Paul is talking about at all. He's writing this as he's in prison waiting to die. 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I've learned how to be content in every season because I've learned that Jesus is my strength and he's my hope and he's the thing that satisfies. Church, think about it. Your souls have been united to the image of the invisible God who breathed you into existence who loves you, is for you, is with you, and we are his children forever because of Jesus Christ. That can never change. For eternity, forever, our souls are united with God because we have been loved and saved by Jesus. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying when that is true and foremost in our hearts, every other circumstance on earth, good or bad, it's just in its right place. It's not all-consuming. Everything else just gets a little bit smaller. So he's like in the good things, like I can enjoy them and it's great, but it doesn't have my hope because I'm united with Christ. And when things go bad, I'm not despairing because at the end of the day, it can't touch my future reality and my eternity that I am united with Christ, right? Like, let's be honest, we are at year end now, right? And we have all of those fun conversations with our bosses about bonuses and raises and job changes. Here's what Paul's saying. Um, some of us, Lord willing, are going to get a good bonus and a raise in that promotion, and that's amazing, praise the Lord, but it doesn't touch your hope. Some of us won't, and that won't be the thing that defines you because we are united with Christ. That's what it means to have the gospel change how we view our circumstances and view the world, right? You know, Jesus, when he talked to people, he used satisfaction language, right? Remember the story of the woman at the well? He, he meets a woman and, and he goes, listen, if you drink of the water that I'm willing to give you, you'll never go thirsty again. And he's telling the woman, you've jumped around from man to man, relationship to relationship, and it's not producing the satisfaction that your heart desires. And he's saying, what your heart desiring isn't wrong in the satisfaction. You're just looking at the wrong place. Set your eyes on me. You'll never be thirsty again. He called himself the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never go hungry again, that I am the thing that can satisfy the eternal longings of your soul. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, right? Rest is satisfaction. Like I almost asked the question to start the message. I almost had you write down, you'll be happy this holiday season when? And here's the point. It's not going to be a gift that does it for you. It's not going to be time with family, and it's not going to be time off work. Those are great, and we should enjoy them. But the only thing that can provide eternal satisfaction is Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so here's how I want to close. I want to close really, really practically. Um, I want to talk about four ways that you and I can lean into contentment today. I don't want this idea to not covet and to be content, to be something that lives in our heads. I want it to live in our hearts and then move to our feet this week. So here are four really, really practical ways we can pursue the lane of contentment. Here's the first. Um, we need to understand that the ideal isn't real. The ideal isn't real. So many of us are dissatisfied because there's this ideal version of our lives that we think is out there and we think, once I arrive, then I will be satisfied and content. And church, here's the good news and the bad news. That ideal is never coming because it's not real. 
Let me prove it to you. If you look up in the Webster's definition of the word ideal, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find existing as a mental image or in fancy or in imagination only. Right? The definition of ideal says this is only something that lives in your imagination. You're never going to find it. Do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and say you're never going to be perfect. Right? The ideal isn't real. Listen, there is no perfect job. It's not out there. If it is, it's under the rainbow next you know, to the unicorn flying around by the pot of gold. It doesn't exist. There is no perfect marriage. There is no perfect spouse. There is no perfect family. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect you. One of the conversations I have often with people is a young couple will come to me when they start dating. And what happens is, is the first six months of their relationship, the same thing always happens. They're just smitten with each other, right? If you're in a relation, you know this is true. Young love is a real thing. And they're like, this person's amazing. I'm so lucky that I found them. I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. They don't even have body odor. They just smell like rainbows and butterflies, right? Like they are the best. And then you can almost set your watch to it. At six months, there's like an emotional crisis moment. And guys will come meet and they'll be like, hey, Cal, I'm having second thoughts about this relationship and I'm freaking out. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I'm learning that my girlfriend's not perfect. I'm like, shocker, right? She's dating you. Obviously, she's not perfect, right? There's some lack of judgment there. Um, and, and it's funny. I'm like, listen, your girlfriend is just as amazing as she always was, but you're learning a couple things. First of all, you're learning that we're all sinful people. And a relationship is two sinful people learning how to love and forgive and move forward. But I, I said, the other thing you're learning, and this is actually really, really good news, you're learning that no relationship can satisfy the eternal longings of your soul. It can't fulfill you. Jerry Maguire was lying. No one completes you, right? And, and so I encourage them, now is the moment to choose love, to choose to forgive, to choose to be patient, to choose to be gracious. And rather than idolizing this person, believing they can satisfy your soul, choose to love them. Listen, your new job will eventually just become your job. You know that? Right? And there'll be things about it that you hate. And you know why that is? Because God cursed work at the fall. Every part of every, or every job is going to have certain parts that are difficult. That new house will just become your house. And guess what? The roof's going to leak. And the carpet's going to have to get redone. And, and church, here's the truth. There are people who spend their lives bouncing from friend group to friend group, school to school, job to job, church to church, constantly dissatisfied with everything around them and never once waking up to the fact that they're the problem. Right? Wherever you are, you're going to be there. And maybe the problem isn't that everyone has always let you down. Maybe the problem is you have a heart issue of covetousness and you're not living in the lane of contentment. Right? Jesus says in John 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. He promises it to us. But then he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, here's the next thing we need to do if we want to live in contentment. Uh, throw away your rose-colored glasses. Those need to go in the garbage. Did you know that one of the things we can actually covet is a stage or season of life? Or here's a better way to say it. Did you know that the word nostalgia can actually be just a fancy word for coveting? Right, like, like, let's think about it. How many times have you heard someone say, man, I miss the good old days, right? I, I, I miss being back in high school. 
Well, well, what are we doing when we say that? Guess what we're doing? We're elevating all of the parts of high school that we loved and choosing not to think about the parts we didn't like. We think about the sporting events. We think about the friendships. We think about the sleepovers. We think about the parties. We, we, we think about looking way, way, way skinnier, right? We're thinking about all of the, the good things. Here's what we're not thinking about, I promise you. We're not thinking about sitting in English class at 9, 18 in the morning wanting to die because you're so bored, right? Right? We're not thinking of looking in the mirror every morning and, and finding a new zit, right? The daily reminder you're going through puberty. We're not thinking about that. We're not thinking about our voices cracking, right? We, we, we only think of the good things and, and we minimize the bad. Guess what we were all doing in high school? We're saying, I can't wait to get out of this prison, right? It's rose-colored glasses, right? So may I, for you, it might be 20s. For, for you, it might be a next stage when you're retired or, or when the kids are out of the house. Like we think that there's this stage that's going to be perfect. Every stage is going to have joys and trials. God is faithful in every single phase. Uh, just this week, I, I saw a picture on our Alexa thing in our kitchen, and it was a picture of Judah as like a newborn baby. And by the way, there was a moment where I was like, man, it would be, I wish I could go back to that stage. He was so cute and cuddly, and I could hold him. And then I thought, for it, thought about it for like 30 seconds, and I was like, I don't want to go back there at all. The kid pooped his pants like four times every day. He didn't sleep. It was exhausting. You couldn't go out and do stuff. Like, your life was dominated by these little ones. And, and listen, that stage was exhausting, and it had real joys and real challenges, just like this stage does. We need to throw away our rose-colored glasses. Here's the next one. Um, we need to learn the difference between enjoyment and hope. We need to learn the difference between enjoyment and hope. So Pastor Taylor, our, our worship pastor, and his wife, they're not here with us this week. They are taking their son, Shay, who's five, uh, to Disney for a vacation. And uh, they left on Wednesday, and I was in the office on Tuesday, and Shay was there. And uh, he knew that he was going to Disney the next day, and he's like in prime Disney age. And he was just grinning ear to ear, so pumped. And I was like, Shay, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to Disney. And I'm like, do you know who lives there? And he's like, no. I'm like, Mickey Mouse lives there. He's like, really? And I'm like, and Goofy. And he just smiles, Goofy is the best. Right, like he's so pumped. So here's what I want you to understand. I hope they're having the absolute best week in the world right now. I want them to have so much fun. I want them to have the best time. I want all of the best things for Taylor and Sam because I love them. But here's what I know at the same time. In a year from now, Shay's going to barely remember the vacation, right? It can't satisfy him long term. I hope they enjoy it and have a great time. But I know it's not going to be the thing when he's 25 that he said, man, that changed my life forever. It doesn't have the ability to satisfy. So, so let me project that onto you guys. Like, listen, in this holiday season, I hope you have an incredible holidays. I hope you enjoy giving gifts to the people you love. I hope you enjoy the rest and the time off work. I hope you enjoy the time with friends and loved ones and family. But listen, don't put your hope in those things. Because only Jesus can satisfy your soul. And, and, and listen, it's cute when, when a five-year-old doesn't get it. It's really, really sad when a 45-year-old can't understand that. Where is your hope? Where is your hope rooted to? It's good to enjoy the things of this world. Don't set your hope in them. All right, and here's the last one, a way that we can lean into contentment, and you're not going to like it. Here's what it is. I take a break from social media. Um, 
if you're here and you're in a place where you're struggling with anxiety or discontentment, one of the things I would lovingly and pastorally say to you, because I care about your heart, maybe social media is feeding that more than you know. And here's why I say that. I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with one of our 20s leaders, and they're new. And she was telling me, she goes, Cal, she goes, I've been blown away at how huge of an issue anxiety is in the young women in our church and in my 20s group. And she goes, most of the girls are on some form of medication to to manage it. And it is a consuming, debilitating thing. And I told this 20s leaders that I'm not surprised by that at all. And here's why. Because the millennial generation is the first generation that actually grew up with social media. Social media entered the scene for me when I was in college, but but the generation behind me, they grew up with it. So in their most formative years, as they're growing up, at their fingertips in every moment is the ability to compare to compare how you look to how other people look. Even though the pictures they're posting are filters and they're not even real, we compare ourselves. To compare our social life with their social life, to compare our friends with their friends, to compare what we're doing with what they're doing, to compare our family with their family. It is a comparison game that never stops and it shouldn't surprise us that at the end of the cul-de-sac of social media leads to a lot of very dissatisfied and anxious people. And church, it's not just me that thinks this, by the way. Just Google anxiety's links with social media. You will see hundreds of independent secular articles saying the more you use social media, the more anxious you get. Now hear me. I'm not saying social media is evil or all wrong, but like pretty much anything in life, if you use social media without any guardrails or wisdom around it, it can be very, very dangerous. Just like with work, work is not a bad thing, but if there's no guardrails or wisdom around work, it can consume you. Alcohol, not inherently evil, really, really unwise to have no guardrails or wisdom around alcohol. Why do we view social media differently? And it's funny, I was talking about this in the green room on Saturday night and one of the guys in their 20s is like, yeah, I don't feel convicted that I have a social media problem. And I was like, that's probably the evidence that you exactly have a social media problem, right? Like what a millennial thing to say. And here's what I will do. Like, here's my challenge. If you're here and you're struggling, this isn't for everyone, but it's for some of us. Um, Commit to going from Thanksgiving to Christmas and turn off social media. Here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find how addicted to it you really are. You're gonna find that like, you're just gonna be mindlessly thinking and you'll be scrolling to the thing where you think your app's gonna be. You're like, oh, where's the app, right? Like, I didn't even realize I was doing this. You're gonna find that you come up with crazy excuses for why you need to be on it. You don't. You're going to see how often you're not present with the people you're actually around because you're staring onto a screen. And you're gonna realize that so much of the power you're giving it, it's simply because you're giving it power. Um, a lot of our soul care counselors, one of, the, one of the things we encourage people is as they're going through counseling, um, to help yourself think clearly and really deal with the issues of your heart, take a break from social media. So I I would say if you're here and this is something where you're resonating with this, man, I'm struggling with contentment. I'm living in an anxious place. I think a bold step of obedience would be pray about it, get some accountability, make a bold step. Um, 
Man, I love that video we watched in our service of Jeremy and Andrea Case. Aren't they a blessing? Wasn't that encouraging to see their excitement for the Lord? And what I love about that video is there's a part where they're like, man, what Jesus did for us, he gave us the why behind the what. He gave us the purpose for why we spend our time and why we're raising our family and why we live. It's not about us, but it's to love Jesus and serve others. And church, what I want you to hear is Jesus gives the same answer in regards to contentment. If Jesus isn't central in your life, there's no reason to be content because all of your hope is here for this moment on this earth. But when we understand that we are loved, known, adopted, saved by Jesus, united with him forever, we can be like Paul and say, hey, listen, I've learned the secret of contentment that in all seasons I have Christ and that's enough. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this church. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for a... um, a commandment that's so practical and and even thousands and thousands of years later still pierces our heart because its truths are eternal. God, I thank you that you love us, that you care for us and that you desire us to enjoy life, enjoy the things you've given, but not be mastered by them or controlled by them. Would you help us in this? I feel this in my heart every day, the temptation to drift to covetousness. Would you help us? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.